welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. So let's look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's look at the first seven verses together. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, that, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe, or what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The grass withers the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. O Lord, our God, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive Your truth in faith and love that we may be obedient to Your will and live always for Your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In his brilliant book, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman describes the age in which we live, and I think he gets it spot on. He says, quote, It is a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something that we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires, and not something that we necessarily conform ourselves to or passively accept. And I understand what he's saying there is to say that we perceive this world to be a world of our making, not God's. This should not surprise us. And, and though this is a really insignificant example, I think about all of the kids who grew up on the Disney movies that told the children that they could be whoever they want to be if they only follow their heart. Who knew that they would take this mantra literally in interpreting human sexuality? But personal perceptions of self-creation, personal perceptions of autonomy, are prevalent not only in modern views of sexuality along with a myriad of other matters, but my point today is, is that we also see it within Christian worship. Consider, for example, the modern phenomenon of what philosopher Charles Taylor calls excarnation. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great word, so you're going to want to remember that. Excarnation. 
not incarnation, but excarnation, in which we as a people perceive the digital, for example, as real. Thus the word virtual reality, right? And increasingly distort our view of what real life is like. Reality. Can you truly worship as a church excarnationally? I don't think so. When I look at Christian worship in the Scripture, you look at your Bible as well, here's what we see, right? We hear the Word preached. We see or hear of eating the bread and drinking the wine, baptizing with water, anointing with oil, singing together, praying together, and so on. Worship involves all five senses. Yet, since the pandemic, you know, and I know personally, someone who has dropped out of church, seemingly feeding their faith with podcast, streamed music, and I quote, online worship. In fact, that term has become so common, and I use it as well, that we stop to think, what is that? And could you even conceive of online worship in the context of the New Testament? Removed from bodily involvement with real people, we feel free to consume at will. Or I love the way that Joshua Pauling puts this. He says, screen and phone went out over skin and bone. <laughs> But our understanding of worship is not only distorted by quote-unquote virtual reality, but also how we understand ourselves physically present within worship. Alan Noble puts this well in in confronting sort of the, the modern worship practices in which we ignore community and we fixate on feelings. Alan Noble says, We experience worship much like experiencing a concert. It becomes an individual, emotional, and spiritual exercise wherein I try my best to think about the words and praise God. But even though I am surrounded by the saints, I remain comfortably in my own head. We have been taught, and we've been taught well, to be consumers, which leads us to worship like consumers. If you come to church, are you getting what you pay for? (laughs) Is the music entertaining you? Are the Bible readings giving you that little nugget of encouragement? Has the sermon given you that dose of some good self-help? I'm just, the point I'm trying to make is, is I really wonder sometimes, have we forgotten who we have come to worship? He's the point. He's the focus. What may not be obvious, however, and what I'm trying to draw together here, and as many others have as well, is that the digital worshiper, and what I call the consumer worshiper, are actually influenced by the same temptation. And here's the temptation. To be unshackled from dependence upon God and others, and to be liberated to please ourselves. 
And this is why we need to hear the preacher of Ecclesiastes. And I might add, this is why Ecclesiastes can sound so foreign to modern ears. Because the preacher, Solomon, he's going to shake us out of our self-consumed thoughts and actions. And what he's going to do, and we see this in the passage today, he is going to ground us in real, live, not virtual, reality. And when we go to the house of God, we are going physically to worship the Lord. And as we do, which is Solomon's presumption, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And so I want to start with this concept of guarding your steps which is a euphemism expressing a sense of reverence. Guard your steps. You are to worship reverently. How we worship is important. But I'm not talking about your and my personal tastes. I'm talking about what is the pleasure of God. In Leviticus, we read of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were the first progenital priests. And perhaps they considered that their ordination warranted them a certain sort of freedom, a certain sort of luxury to approach God other than what God had instructed according to His Word. Now, we don't know their motive. But what we do know is that they decided to worship as they pleased rather than how God prescribed. Attempting to offer Him, as it might be translated as, unauthorized incense before God. I love the way that the King James translates it. They offered strange fire (laughs) before God. And do you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? It's actually quite gruesome. Fire burned them to death instantly. They were consumed. And in that moment, think about that. In that gruesome moment, no one thought worshiping God was flippant. Nobody in that moment thought, God is my homeboy. And nor should we. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence. And awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That view necessitates what we might call a high view of God. Now, I realize that I am a Presbyterian preacher preaching to a sanctuary full of Presbyterians. Like, we've got this, right? We have a high view of God, and we love it. But sometimes, even we who hold to those historic doctrines of the sovereignty of God, even we need to be reminded our God is a consuming fire. The psalmist cries out, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. You ever heard God referred to as that? The perfection of beauty. God shines forth. The psalmist goes on to say, our God comes. 
He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. That's a high view of God. This is the view that Solomon is advocating here in Ecclesiastes. In fact, if I was just, and we don't have time, but if I was just to take us from chapter 1 and get us all the way here to the second verse of chapter 5, what we see is that Solomon is advocating that our God is in heaven. He rules over time. He judges all people. And yet, and yet, He is approachable in worship but with reverence and awe. And Solomon says, guard your steps. Worship reverently. And secondly, listen. Listen attentively. An essential part of reverent worship is attentively listening to the Word of God read. The Word of God sung. The Word of God preached and sacramentally administered. God is not silent, but is chosen to reveal Himself specifically through His special revelation. That is the Holy Scriptures. We're teaching on this right now in our Sunday school class. How often we take the Word of God for granted. Faithful worshipers, hear me here, faithful worshipers are listeners first. Faithful worshipers are listeners first. But you and I live in a loud world and in a culture that does not favor the quiet and the contemplative. Sadly, many Christians have adapted to the noise, elevating a self-expression over attentively listening to God. Now, some, perhaps you, perhaps someone watching today, may say, well, but... But maybe this critique is merely just a stylistic critique, John. Some like it rowdy. But Solomon says that it's the fool who rambunctiously rushes on in his sacrificial worship rather than attending to the Word of God, offering strange fire of a different kind. We hear something similar in Isaiah where God tells Israel that their sacrificial worship makes him sick. (laughs) We hear the same thing in Amos, in which God says to Israel that their sacrificial worship, he not only dislikes, he hates it. The fool may dream up a myriad of justifications, but when it comes to worship, No one takes God's worship more seriously than God. In Old Testament worship, sacrifices were offered in the beginning in silence. Not a word. Sacrifices were offered in silence. And then the law was read. And then the word would be expounded upon The people would then respond to God's Word through prayers and songs, which songs are just sung prayers, right? And then the service would conclude with a type of benediction. 
Similarly, think about this as we worship today as the living temple of God. We assemble in worship following the once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We assemble on the day of His resurrection, signifying God's acceptance of the sacrifice offered and the forgiveness that we have in it. We assemble as those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, worshiping to and regulated by the Word of God. The Word in the service, and I hope that you pick up on this, I know many of you do, we intend for the worship service to be Scripture-saturated. That we begin with a call to worship. That we are singing hymns that are based on the Word of God. That we are confessing our sins with the Word of God. That we are hearing the Gospel preached by the Word of God. That we are hearing all of this, even the passage that I've read, and as I preach, and so forth and so on, even the benediction. Our services are intentionally Scripture-saturated because we are to be listeners first. This means that as a people governed and directed by God's Word, we are first listeners, but then, Solomon says, but then cautious in what we say. In Old Testament worship, a man might make a vow to God in temple worship. And Solomon's caution is not against vow-making, which has its time and place, and I might say even within the New Covenant but it is to be taken seriously. And Solomon says, so seriously that you are to act on it in faith. Now think about this with me, examples. The beautiful example that immediately comes to my mind is Hannah's vow. And her vow to surrender her son Samuel in service to God. The beautiful thing that we see in that example is that Hannah didn't come back to Eli and say, He's such a precious boy. He's stolen my heart. I need to renegotiate the transaction. She didn't, did she? She came back with a linen ephod, which I'm really not sure exactly what that looked like. I've always been curious about that. But she surrendered Samuel to God in faithfulness. In the New Testament, we see the opposite of that, don't we, with Ananias and Sapphira. They made a vow to God. It was a reasonable vow. And then husband and wife die. I mean, lied to God and then died by virtue of their lies. We might put it this way in our own vernacular, drawing in biblical terminology. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Do what you say. Let your yes be yes. And your no be no. And this extends, of course, to worship, which is the point of this passage. Think about it this way. Many of you, I certainly did, I made a vow when I was baptized to be a faithful follower of Christ. I made a vow before God to be faithful to my wife in marriage. I made a vow as a minister, which our book of church order says, quote, that I vowed to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the trust of the gospel and the purity, peace, and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise. Solomon says, when you vow a vow to God, pay what you vow. Meaning, fulfill it. 
be faithful to do what you have vowed to God. And although our world encourages us to treat words as castaways, lacking substance, unless, well, unless my words give me what I want or lead to what I want to accomplish, we oftentimes think about our words as disposable. This has become so rampant within our culture that it is hard to tell when someone is telling the truth or reporting the truth or lying for the sake of publicity or attention or money or politics or whatever the case is. We are a public that is confused. And when that begins to trickle in to our worship and you can't trust what one another say, We've seen the world infiltrating. Jesus said this, On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words really do matter. Especially to God. So let us listen to the Word of God attentively. Let our, words, let our words be few and substantive. And let us live fearfully before God. Let us live fearfully before God. Now I want to draw your attention to this. At the beginning of this passage in, chapter, in verse 1, Solomon says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then he concludes with the seventh verse by saying, God is the one you must fear. Literary scholars call that an inclusio. In other words, what we see there is Solomon is drawing these two together, reverence and awe, with fear of God as sort of a caution, an inclusio caution as it were. In fact, Solomon will return to his admonition to fear the God. And for those of you who haven't read all of Ecclesiastes, this is your spoiler alert. Plug your ears if you're not prepared for this. Here's how Ecclesiastes concludes. And I quote, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. But we're going to get there. But right now... Solomon has introduced it for the first time, and that should lead us to ask the question, what does he mean? What does it mean to fear God, and how does it impact our worship? We all want to know that. We all should want to know that. Now, certainly it includes what one commentator calls trembling trust. And that's a good one. Recognition that our God is a consuming fire, necessitating a response of acceptable worship with reverence and awe. But the fear of God is more than simply reverent recognition and worshipful response. It is, the fear of God, is in its very essence, faith accompanied with obedience. Now, that may be new to you, and you may be thinking about that. Fear of God is faith and obedience. Now, hold that thought for just a second, and I want to give you the example that Rick read in the Scripture reading earlier of Abraham. Abraham and Isaac. God called Abraham to attempt 
to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And Scripture says that God was testing Abraham by commanding him to do this, by commanding him to offer his son as a burnt offering. As God commanded Abraham, Abraham faithfully obeyed. He went to the mountain, he prepared the altar, he went and included the wood, and he even went as far as binding his son. You know the account, right? And in our minds, we picture Abraham with the knife about to strike and to slaughter his son like a lamb upon the altar. And mercifully, God intervened. It says the angel of the Lord intervened, and Isaac was spared. And a substitutionary sacrifice was provided. A ram in the thicket. A beautiful picture of the gospel. But I don't have time to go there. Because the point I'm trying to get at is this. Is that in that moment of Abraham's obedience. And the Lord's provision of the ram. Listen closely to what God said to Abraham. Quote. Now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Which is a little frustrating to me. Because I think, now? Finally? I mean, think about it. This is the man that God promised and justified as righteous. The man who is called in Isaiah and James a friend of God. He's the man that the Apostle Paul says, look to his faith. He's the man that the writer of Hebrews says, you want an example? This is my lengthiest passage in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Here he is, Abraham. And yet, it is a fear that believes that God will fulfill His promise. It is a fear that responds with obedience. It is a fear that leads Abraham to reassure his son Isaac with those beautiful words. God will provide for Himself the Lamb. The writer of Hebrews said, and even beyond that, he knew that he could resurrect Him from the dead. But he says to Isaac, He will provide the Lamb. It is a fear that James uses as an example of faith, and, and here's where I'm getting to, it's a fear that Solomon says should direct our worship. To fear God is to rightly see God's promise and His provision for us in Christ alone. And by His grace to trust in Him and to obey His commands. To fear God then is a right response to the good news of Jesus Christ. The sinners like you, like me, like Abraham, like Isaac are saved by God's grace, forgiven our sins, and enabled and empowered to rightly worship the Lord our God. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Or God in heaven, you are awesome and to be feared. And may we who rightly rejoice in your sovereignty, may we confess that even those of us who have a high view of God can become so flippant in our worship of you. 
but you have assembled us this day, this moment in time. We're not promised tomorrow, but in this moment, we are gathered as the community of saints, your people, to worship you. This is our high privilege, in fact, our chief end. And so we ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit, awaken us to your grandeur. May we see your glory. May we worship you rightly in reverence and awe. And prepare us, our hearts, for receiving the Lord's Supper today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.